Romans 1 again. Uh, we're looking at two verses this evening, verses 19 and 20. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, that is to the people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. One of the big objections that uh, people raise to Christianity is the question of God's justice towards people who don't have the Bible, uh, who have never heard the gospel preached to them. Uh, the problem lies in the feeling that if people are ignorant of God and his demands, if they've never heard the Ten Commandments, then how can they be blamed? Because they're in ignorance. They don't know there's only one God and that they should worship him and not gods of wood and stone. For people to be judged and condemned because they have disobeyed God uh, in the full knowledge of the Bible and the law of God is one thing, but for people to be condemned who've never read a Bible, who've never met a Christian, well, is that fair? And so this becomes uh, one of the, the chief planks of objection to Christianity. And one of the, the principal questions that raised uh, within uh, the Christian fellowship from youth fellowships uh, upwards, what about, what about the, the African native who has never heard uh, anything about the Bible. It's not a very PC way of putting it today, but uh, you know, the idea of the person uh, out there who's had no contact with any form of Christianity. Paul is saying here that God is absolutely just. He doesn't deal unfairly with people. Yes, his wrath is being revealed from heaven. Yes, wrongdoers everywhere need to be aware because God is going to deal with them uh, if they do not acknowledge and worship God. But if they do not, they have only themselves to blame, Paul says. They are without excuse. The atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell uh, was once asked, uh, what would he do if it turned out that he was wrong and he died and then appeared before God on the judgment day, God asked him, why didn't you believe me? And uh, Russell uh, said to have replied, I would say, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. Paul is showing the fallacy of Bertrand Russell's uh, retort here. Paul is demonstrating that God has given enough evidence. And because he has, men are without excuse. The word without excuse uh, translates uh, a kind of technical expression, a legal expression, a court expression. Uh, if you were accused of a crime and you were called to stand in the dock before the judge and the jury, you would have been required to give an apologia, a defence. 
to be required to defend yourself. And if you weren't able to defend yourself, then you were said to be unapologetic, without defense. Paul says, because of the things that God has done, we are unapologia. We have nothing to say before God. Now that, of course, is a big contrast with what a lot of people like Bertrand Russell think will be the case, or would be the case, if God indeed were there. That if God were there, they would give God a mouthful. They would give God a, a telling off for the way that he has designed things. And Paul is saying, every mouth will be shut. Men will be silent before God. Because on that day, uh, there will be no defense. They have known, but they have suppressed the truth in wickedness. The gist of what Paul is saying here is that there is a revelation that God has given of himself, which is separate and apart from the revelation that we have in the Bible. So that even without having the Bible, God has made himself known. Uh, He has revealed himself in a general kind of way. That's why we call it today general revelation. Theologians speak about the Bible as special revelation, but there is also a general revelation, which is there to all people, regardless of whether they've met Christians, heard the gospel, or have a Bible. And we're going to look at what that, that general revelation is, and then how effective it is, and then what the result of it is in those who see it. Paul says in verse 24, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. God reveals not only the fact that he is there, but he reveals a great deal about himself, what he is like, by what he has made. It's through things that he has made that God reveals himself. Now, we shouldn't really be too surprised at that, because when you think about it, uh, creative people reveal themselves in what they've made. Uh, If you're into art, then you know that people who paint things are revealing a little bit of themselves in what they make. They're expressing themselves in their art. Uh, At another level, a a joiner will recognize the handiwork of the, the master joiner he served his apprenticeship under because he has his own trademark way of going about things. He leaves a stamp. He stamps his personality on the way he does his joinery work. And there are three different aspects of God's works that reveal him. Uh, God reveals himself in uh, his creation in terms of human beings. And then he's also revealing himself in the non-human creation. And then thirdly, God is revealing himself in the way that he governs his creation, or what we call his providence, the way he's guiding history. So God reveals himself in us and in 
the, the world around us and in the way he guides history. John Calvin uh, once famously said, No man can survey himself without forthwith turning his thoughts towards the God in whom he lives and moves. Calvin saying you can't begin to seriously look at what you are like, to contemplate yourself without being forced to go on to think of God. And he says also that God has uh, placed a sense of the divine within every human being. There's a religious instinct in every person because of the fact that we are God's handiwork. Now, anthropologists, that's people who study uh, humanity, they, they like to, to speak of uh, the instincts that there are in humanity, you know, the instinct to survive or the, the sexual instinct and so on. But there is a religious instinct which is overlooked, but which is undoubtedly there. We are incurably religious because God has placed the spark of the divine within us. We are made in his image and that connection means that we instinctively want to reach out to God. So there's that sense of the divine within us, that kind of intangible sense that there's a God there. But also in, in our makeup as people who have been made by God, uh, there are things about us that point us towards God all the time. First of these, uh, I need to think about it, but one of the words that we use for God is that God is transcendent, okay? It's a kind of uh, a big theologian's word, but it's simply meaning that God is not part of the world. He is he's set apart from the world. He is over the world. He is uh, over and above what he has made. And because we have been made in this image, we, we know what it is to be transcendent in, in a kind of minor way. We have a feeling, every one of us, that we're not part of the, the rest of creation. We've been set apart by being made in God's image from the rest. Despite what the evolutionists always tell us, that we're simply intelligent apes, part of this continuum, we know that we're very unlike the beasts of the field. We're not simply... Uh, uh, super evolved animals. We've got this sense of being distinct, of being apart from the rest of creation. And we show God's character in different ways that animals can't. Uh, we've got an understanding of beauty, which they do not have. We have an ability to control our instincts that animals don't have. We are able to make complex, logical deductions. Uh, we have a creativity that's way beyond anything that's found in the animal kingdom. And so we admire people who are, who are blessed with uh, creative instincts. Uh, we admire the, the, the builder who has a creative ability, uh, who's always in great demand because he's able to sort out uh, what's gone wrong in the house. He has a knack for doing it. Or, or that, uh, that student who's really good at fixing computers, who has that, that technological uh, knack for getting things sorted and getting things up and running again. And we shouldn't be surprised that there is this creativity in people because they are reflecting the creator God who has made this universe in such a wonderful way. 
And so we see that in, in men and women uh, doing these wonderfully creative things, uh, whether it's designing cars or, or the World Wide Web or whatever it is, reflecting the mind of the Creator. But above all, we have our sense of morality. We know what is right and wrong. It's, it's ingrained in us. And this is the, the great Achilles heel of the atheist. The atheist can't explain why it is that we have a sense of wrong. Why is it that people who uh, have got no basis for, for, uh, for right or wrong appeal to the rightness of a situation? No. Uh, <coughs> give me a piece of your orange, I give you a piece of mine. Why don't you do that? Uh, that's not fair that you treat me like that. Uh, there's a an understanding that there is out there a right and there's a wrong. But if you don't believe in God, what basis have you for saying that? Uh, why would you say that the, the Nazi uh, undertaking to create a, a refined uh, race by weeding out uh, all of the undesirables from Germany, their eugenics problem, why would we say that was wrong? Unless... God has implanted within us uh, a sense of moral order. The atheist has got no foundation on which to build morality. And then there is not just <coughs> God showing himself in human beings, but God showing himself in creation. Creation. All around us, uh, we are surrounded by things which are stunningly beautiful. This is the, the Northern Lights uh, near Aberdeen. Think of the breadth of, of God's creation. Think of the, the, the glory of the, the peacock, the dolphin, the beauty of our own land. You have to only travel five or ten miles in, in our own land and you come across uh, another breathtaking sight different from the one that you last saw. Uh, all around us we're confronted by the, the power and the wisdom and the beauty of God. And then when, when scientists begin to, to think more closely about the way that the world has been made, uh, they're confronted by the fact that the, this world is finely tuned for humans to live here. Now, the, the Big Bang Theory is often associated with, with uh, uh, evolutionists who, who don't believe in a, in a creation, don't believe in a creator. But really, their, their thinking doesn't really uh, accommodate that disbelief in God. Because even on their own grounds, on their own terms, they're confronted by the conditions that would be required being absolutely improbable. Uh, someone has calculated that the, that the odds of the the, the low entropy condition required are of the order of 1 out of 10 to the power of 123. I mean, I, I can't even, I can't comprehend that. That's beyond calculation. It's impossibly uh, long odds against uh, these conditions. Uh, they, they also talk about the, the conditions of gravity or of, of the weak force uh, that are required to sustain life. A change in that by only one part in 10 to the power of 100 
would prevent a life-permitting universe. Again, it's mind-blowing. It's beyond uh, calculation. Now, when the Christian points out this fact that the universe uh, seems to be so finely tuned for life, and therefore, if it's finely tuned, there must be a tuner, there must be a designer. The atheist often responds saying, well, of course, that's how we see it, because if the universe wasn't finely tuned, then we wouldn't be here to be surprised by it. Now, when you, when you hear these things, it sounds, it sounds kind of convincing until you get another smart guy like William Lane Craig, the philosopher, who comes along uh, with the following illustration which shows uh, that that really is a, a, a fallacy, this line of reasoning. He has this illustration. Uh, supposing, he says, supposing you're, you're abroad, you're travelling abroad, and you're accused uh, on a trumped-up charge of drug smuggling. You're dragged before a firing squad of 100 trained marksmen. The command is given, ready, aim, fire. You hear the deafening roar of the guns, and you discover that you're still alive. That all the 100 trained marksmen missed now, what do you conclude? Do you conclude, I really shouldn't be surprised at the improbability of them all missing, because if they hadn't missed, then I wouldn't be here. Since I am here, I should expect them all to miss. Of course, you wouldn't think that. That would be a, a, not a sensible conclusion. You would rightly conclude that they all missed on purpose, that the whole thing was set up for some reason by someone. He concludes, in exactly the same way, given the incomprehensibly improbable fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life, it's rational to conclude that this is not the result of chance, but design. So we are, here we are, set in this, this world which is stunningly beautiful, reflecting the Creator which is fine-tuned because it's the work of a designer who has made this, this world uh, so that it is just perfectly adapted for those he has made in his image. And then uh, the third way that we see uh, the evidence for God is in the flow of history, in God's control uh, over what happens, in his control of his creation and of uh, the beings who populate his world. Uh, he shows his power in the storm and in the earthquake. Uh, in 2011, February 2011, uh, a 6.4 Richter scale earthquake struck uh, New Zealand. And one of the, 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 the towns that was, was badly hit was Canterbury in North Island. Canterbury is in South Island. South Island, I think it's South Island. Yes, South Island. The museum in Canterbury was badly damaged. I think 5% of the, the contents were, were, were damaged badly and the, the, the structure of the building. And what was commented on later was the fact that uh, on the facade of this museum, a godly uh, man, a governor of the, of the island earlier, had suggested this, this verse from Job 26, low these are parts of his ways, but how little a portion is heard of him. 
And the irony is that that's not the whole of Job 26, 14. The verse goes on. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? People in an earlier generation were far more uh, open to the fact that God was revealing himself uh, in these mighty acts. Here's a, a mighty earthquake shaking this building, which is even bearing a verse testifying to the fact that God is revealing himself in the thunder of his power. He shows his power in his wisdom and wisdom in the regularity of the tides and the orbit of the planets in the sky and in the way he is controlling history. As we look at history, we are confronted by the governing hand of God. History is his story. It is the, the governing of the nations that the Messiah might come at the right time and that he might be preached amongst the nations and that the people amongst whom he is cradled will one day come to believe him. And one of the great evidences for, for God is surely the existence of the Jewish people. When we think about that, it's a remarkable fact that the Jewish people have remained as a distinct entity. Think of, of the marvel. Uh, against all the odds, the promise to Abraham uh, culminates in a nation uh, amongst whom the Lord Jesus is born. For almost 1900 years, uh, the Jews have wandered around the earth as strangers, being persecuted wherever they went. Then comes uh, the rise of Nazi Germany, the Holocaust. Six million Jews put to death in the concentration camps. And yet, despite all the odds, the State of Israel, reborn May the 14th, 1948, Jews return to their homeland from all points of the compass. The second time during which they have returned from exile. Now the remarkable fact, I mean it's a remarkable fact that Israel uh, was founded. But even more remarkable is that they were Jews who understood themselves as Jewish to return. They had kept their identity. Historians say that after five generations living away from their homeland, people lose their national identity. They're absorbed into a new culture. Not so with the Jews. They remained a distinct entity. And the nations which surrounded them and persecuted them, they've disappeared by and large from the face of the earth. Moab, Ammon, Edom, Philistia. They've lost their national identity. When was the last time you heard of a, a Russian Moabite or a German Philistine? But you have heard of Russian Jews, German Jews. God keeping a people for himself. Why? Well, because we believe that later in this epistle we're going to hear of a great hope for the ancient people of God. A turning again to the Messiah that they despised when he came at first. So God is revealing himself uh, through, uh, 
through us, through human beings, revealing himself through the creation, and also revealing himself in the way he governs his creation. How effective, how effective is this revelation? Well, Paul says, first of all, it's clear. It is easily understood. Uh, Paul says, it's plain to them because God has made it plain. Verse 19. It's clearly seen. Verse 20. God hasn't hid himself on the top of a mountain and left obscure clues strewn around the place so that people will will try and puzzle them out and, and find him. God's not hiding from anyone. God has made himself plain. The citizens of Glasgow aren't advantaged over pygmies in Congo because the same general revelation goes out to all and the evidence is clear. It's also compelling. It's clear and it's compelling. It's understood. God's invisible attributes have been understood from what has been made. So what God is is, uh, is showing forth all the time is not something that's complicated. You don't need to have a PhD to pick up on what God is revealing. It is understood from what has been made. Uh, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. It's clear. It's compelling. And it's comprehensive information that God gives. It's not meager information. It's in relation to what may be known about God. Uh, God is, by nature, incomprehensible in the sense that we can't comprehend. We cannot bound God by our intellect. But what may be known about God is revealed by what he has made. There's so much that may be known about God, even apart from his word, that he's wise and powerful and patient, a God of order, a God of justice. And so the result is that we're surrounded by constant, comprehensive, clear, compelling, revelational pressure all about us. Calvin says the world is a theatre of God's glory. Well, if it's effective, what's the result? The result is that men are inexcusable for ignoring it. Because this revelation, uh, although it's sufficient, sufficient to convict people of the existence of God, to make them thankful to God, to make them acknowledge God, to make them worship God, men reject the revelation. And the problem is not that the revelation is faulty, it's not that it's inadequate, it's not that, as Bertrand Russell claimed, God hadn't given enough evidence, God hasn't made himself clear enough. The problem lies with what Paul says earlier, that men suppress the truth by their wickedness. Because people in their sinful condition resent God, do not want to have God involved in their lives, want to keep God at arm's length, 
they are repressing the truth in their wickedness. When I come to this phrase, I, I have this mental image, and I hope it's helpful, of a kind of blanket box, an old-fashioned blanket box, and inside it, uh, the genie of truth. And the genie's pushing at the, at the lid of the blanket box, and sinful man is sitting on it and trying to keep the genie down. He's repressing the truth in his wickedness. Doesn't want to know the truth that would confront him with the God who is there and with whom he must deal. Because the mind of sinful man is enmity towards God. All that God stands for, holiness, separation from sin, justice, judgment, truth, light, man rejects and wants to banish completely. Now, just as we, we wrap up, there are some very, very practical implications for all of this. Implications for the way that we witness, that we share our faith with others. First of all, the unbeliever is always in a position of insecurity. Uh, in Deuteronomy, there's a picture of the the, the word picture of the person who flees at the falling of a leaf. The unbeliever is desperately insecure. The slightest thing, the slightest echo from God triggers off his unease. There's a, a poem, I, I, I hope that you get this, I think it's uh, conveying the same idea. Uh, it's uh, Bishop Blougram's Elegy, which speaks about the... the the great, perhaps, the, the idea that haunts the unbeliever, that just perhaps there is a God who is there, a God that I've denied all my life, and yet who just perhaps is there. And there are little things in life which come unexpectedly and bring about the unease in the believer. Just when we are safest, there's a sunset touch a fancy from a flower bell, someone's death, a chorus ending from Euripides, and that's enough for fifty hopes and fears as old and new at once as nature's itself to wrap and knock and enter in our soul, take hands and dance there, a fantastic ring round the ancient idol on his base again, the grand, perhaps, desperate, insecurity, triggered off by a little sight of the Creator's work. So we should always witness from a position of strength, of security. The unbeliever knows there is a God there, rejects the knowledge of God, and he, he sublimates the worship that should be given to God to other things. He redirects it. I remember once uh, in, when I was in Staffan uh, going to visit a, a newcomer and <coughs> standing on the door explaining what I was there for, uh, this man glowering down at me as though I was strapped with dynamite and uh, then trying to bring the conversation to an end by saying, I'm, I'm not religious. And I responded uh, kind of like this. I said, you, you know that you are religious. Uh, we are all religious. Every one of us is religious. The question is, to whom are we giving our worship? Uh, you are giving worship in the wrong direction until you come to know Jesus. He's the only one who's worthy of your worship. You hear this a lot, I'm not religious. 
Everybody's religious. We're incurably religious. But we make a religion of the wrong thing so often. We also need to be aware of the idea that science is conducted in an unbiased way. Uh, Non-believing scientists will always have a tension uh, between uh, their God-given desire to go where the truth leads them, which is what science should do, and what Paul is describing here, this, this desire to repress the truth in wickedness. Uh, that's why you, you find that, uh, for example, the rejection of the whole idea of intelligent design is indefensible. Intelligent design is, is simply uh, Christian scientists who say, we think that the hypothesis that what we are witnessing demands the explanation of a designer. It shows evidence of design. So they're stopping short of, of concluding that there is a God. All they're saying is that we must acknowledge design in creation. And yet, uh, in nearly everywhere, uh, there's a raising of hands in horror uh, that this is a Trojan horse uh, bringing uh, God into a place where God is not welcome. Again, it's man suppressing the truth in wickedness. And then lastly, as we, as we think of this, of this revelation that is there, that makes man without excuse, our thoughts are inevitably brought up to thank the Lord that we have him revealed to us in Jesus. How much greater is that revelation that we have? How much more blessed we are? How else could we know that God is ready to blot out our sin uh, in spite of our years of repressing the truth? How else could we know that he stoops to bring us into his family? That he crowns us with the security of being his children. How else could we know but through this word that the God who made the blue whale and the, the, the milky way, the God that has made all things would one day take on flesh and come and be born as a baby. Such a super plus, such a, a wonderful uh, addition to what we have in general revelation. And therefore, we need to be sure we have responded to it, that we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we do all that we can do to share it. Because general revelation brings condemnation to these men without excuse. But the gospel, as Paul says, is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes first of all to the Jew also to the Gentile Heavenly Father we thank you for uh, revealing yourself we thank you for the fact that you have disclosed yourself in the work of your hands thank you for the uh, the piercing analysis of the human condition that we have uh, in this letter Lord, as we go into the week ahead of us, remind us continually that those that we are 
rubbing shoulders with, who claim to have no inkling of there being a God, have a far greater inkling than they're willing to let on. And help us to be people who create soul thirst and curiosity that we might be able to share the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, and through whom we come to know you as God and Father. We pray in Jesus' name.